Okay, we're here on the Next Right Podcast, episode 8, with Charlie and... Charlie! And we're joined by Sister Bear. (laughs) Actually, Sister Marie Ursula. She's uh, from the Sisters of the Metolius. Uh, uh, Wilderness spirituality uh, out of rural Oregon. Well, remote Oregon uh, and that. Uh, Sister Bear is one of my favorite sisters. She's, well, we'll let you tell her how she, uh, tell you how she got to be known as Sister Bear uh, and everything. I, uh, she's somebody that's been on the, uh, been on the website before. I got to meet her last year. And I got to tell you, when I met her last year in Portland, Oregon, she came out uh, when I was visiting there. Um, I was surprised. Sister, I don't know if I ever told you, in my mind, I imagined Sister Marie Ursula as looking something like um, the Mother Superior from Lilies of the Field. (laughs) (laughs) And Sister Bear is a lovely woman. She reminds me of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, which is very appropriate for being out in the wilds of of rural Oregon. Um, So, Tell us a little bit, first of all, about what the Sisters of the Metolius are and what your mission is, Sister. Okay, the Sisters of the Metolius is in the status of, in, in canonical status of being a private association of the faithful, which is what all religious ardor, religious ardors, orders start out as. Um, so we we just join together. We um, we have our mission. Um, We're in touch with the diocese, but um, it's not something that started by a diocese. And so right now, I am the vowed member, and there are two associate members, and then a whole collection of people that we uh, participate with in many different kinds of, I guess you could say, ministries or volunteer activities in this small community where we live. Okay. Um, what does Metolius mean? Tell us what the Metolius part is about. Well, the Metolius River is this uh, wild and scenic river um, that was named by the Indians, uh, you know, in, in the earlier centuries, um, because this is where many ocean-going fish return to spawn at the headwaters of the Metolius. And the headwaters is just Maybe two miles from here, I can easily walk to the headwaters. It's a spring-fed river that comes up from dry ground, travels 33 miles north and east, where it enters the Deschutes River, which then flows into the Columbia, which then flows into the vast Pacific Ocean. So the the fish, many different kinds of fish, including Chinook salmon, would spawn here then they'd grow up, travel to the ocean, and return by this mysterious call to come back to their headwaters and create new life. So this was a very special river for the Indians. And when, when white explorers first discovered it in the early 1800s, um, they heard the name Metolius. And, and Metolius is sort of an Anglica, anglicized version of the Indian word referring to the spawning and the um, sparkling water, new life. Okay. Well, you know, I saw 
being out in the remote area that you are, you saw probably last month that YouTube that went viral of a nun with a chainsaw, and she was <laughs> handling it very awkwardly. I thought, man, that ain't nothing. You should see Sister Bear with her axe. <laughs> well, I, I do have an axe, and I do have a little electric chainsaw. And I, I honestly respect to nuns that wear the long habits. I don't know if I could do what I do out here wearing a long habit. <laughs> so <laughs> Oh no, you're 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 in the wilderness <laughs> and you have to be dressed uh, often like uh, <laughs> like uh, Dr. Quinn medicine exactly. woman. Even she wore a long dress most of the time, so Yes. <laughs> um tell me a little bit about the sort of ministries um that that you try to live. Uh, your fundamental mission and the ministries that you live out there. Okay, well, I the 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 stated mission of the Sisters of Metolius is this, and I'll just read it. We join together as the reconciling body of Christ Jesus to respect and care for all of God's creation, including the human person from conception until natural death. And each one of those phrases, I won't go into them in detail, but they they are very much a part of the lived experience many us of many of us have had um, associates and also myself of first of all the need for reconciliation both in the body of Christ universally um, and also just among among people everywhere. It, it's a we're in a terrible time of division, and yes. that that pains me greatly. And then to respect and care of care for all of God's creation, we're here in this very beautiful setting. Um, it's a, I would say it's not a rugged kind of beauty, but an exquisite beauty that requires tender care. And um, just as an example of of the beauty. And how it relates to God. Years ago, um, for many years, I worked at a home for women coming out of jail or prison located near San Francisco. And we would have retreats up here in my family's cabin. And one of the women, she was pretty young, and she, she said, I had 45 felonies. She came up here for this few-day retreat. And after that, she said, this is where I first experienced God as loving and beautiful. So that speaks to the exquisite beauty here. And then the reconciliation uh, and the care for all of God's creation, including the human person from conception until natural death. Oftentimes there's a perceived clash between caring for the human person from conception to natural death and caring for the rest of creation. We think we have to pit one against the other. Well, that's not how God created things. Um, that's not how he great created the world. That's not how he created people. That's not how he creates the human soul um, for that division. And so, so it's another um, division that needs to be healed. And this leads me into a ministry that's, that has been very important, uh, certainly in the last few years up here. 
and that is our care for elders. And even as we speak, Charlie and Chaz, um, one of our beloved elders, who is 102 years old, is in the final hours of her life. And a few of us up here, Karen, and whom you've met, right. and, and others, along with her family, have made it possible for her to spend her last years in her beloved home here in the forest. Now, last year, when you mentioned that I reminded you of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, I, I'd heard of her, but I'd never actually watched an episode of Dr. Quinn. Okay. I found one online and probably, you know, probably pirated. And then I actually ordered the whole set of DVDs for $33.99 because <laughs> they, re they reminded me so much of Catherine Livingston and her family heritage which I won't go into. So I got those DVDs. She she can no longer read, but she could watch TV. So starting last September, we have watched Dr. Quinn all the nights that I'm there, just about all the nights, and she just loves Dr. Quinn. And every time I show up, she says, did you bring? And I said, <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> so of course I brought Dr. Quinn. So anyway... The other great gift, and this is just a little plug for Jane Seymour, I thought, you know, it was two days before her birthday in June. Her birthday's on June 1st. She was going to, going to be turning 102. I was about getting ready to go to work there. And I said, you know, I'm just going to call Jane Seymour's pub, you know, public affairs person and see what happens. So anyway, as a result of that, Dr. Quinn called Catherine on her birthday. Oh, wow. <laughs> Here in the wilds of Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just so delightful. They spoke for about six minutes. Catherine was totally sharp. It was just so delightful. And all of us now, of course, have this undying affection and appreciation for Jane Seymour. It was just a lovely, lovely thing and that she didn't have to do, but she wanted to and she did. So that was just such a delight for Catherine. And the last words I spoke to Catherine on Monday when she could still speak, I said, Catherine, I will let I will keep Dr. Quinn posted. And she said, good. <laughs> so anyway, I just thought I, I would pass that along to you because you had a little connecting role in something that has brought great delight and comfort and fun to this beautiful elderly lady here in the forest. That's amazing. You never know when you toss a pebble into the water where the ripples are going to go, do you? <laughs> exactly. You never know. Man. I like that. Kids. I like that. Who doesn't like that? It's a great story. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, Dr. Quinn. Does she do bir does she do uh, house calls? I mean, you think uh, my birthday's coming up? Can you make a call? I know Catherine uh, did invite her invite her to come see her beautiful house on on the banks of Spring Creek, but probably won't happen in this lifetime. So, well, it's lovely. You know, I love those stories about people who, unbeknownst without a press agent around or doing things. I uh, wrote a little story about um, the young actress and singer, Selena Gomez. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine's niece was 
in her residency, a doctor, <laughs> since we're on doctors, in Dallas at a children's hospital, and Selena Gomez was going to be in the area. This child was a, there was a child that was a huge fan of Gomez, and, um, but she was supposed to be, you know, not get visitors and all this. This, this doctor, who was then a resident, uh, made the call to some publicist and asked her, could she come visit her? And she did. She came and visited. I mean, there was no press, no nothing. She just came and uh, the, they told me that the little girl really rallied after that point. She felt so cared for. Those mm-hmm. little ways of reaching out. I know different things with um, in Hollywood. Believe it or not, there is a nice coterie of serious Catholics that do uh that do things like that very quietly. Peter McNichol, uh, Jimmy Smiths, you remember him from NYPD Blue and Catherine O'Hara. O'Hara. Um, mm-hmm. So there's really some good things going on, but reaching out. You know, I love when you talked about um, experiencing God, that young woman who experienced God. Yes. One of my big things is we can't, we cannot convert anyone. People are converted by encountering God. And they what we can do is we can put up barriers or we can take down barriers. And mm-hmm. all too often when we think we're being religious, we're putting up barriers that keep people out. Yeah. You know. I agree. So out here in the wilds of Oregon, I think I've mentioned somewhere, but um, there are about – in Camp Sherman, there are about 12 practicing Catholics and about a dozen, maybe more, uh, Christians of other denominations who either attend our little tiny chapel in the Pines here or or attend somewhere in Sisters, which is about 15 miles away on a lonely highway through the forest. And <clears throat> the rest of the people here, uh, I'd, I'd say there are about 150 year-round residents, are what I would call people of goodwill. And it's a community where that's pretty much run by volunteers. We have a few very small establishments that have employees, but everything else is pretty much run by volunteers. And so we work together on the different things. And, you know, a good number of the people um, attended my vows ceremony here in 2010 which was um, led by some four sisters of mercy, dear friends of mine. Um, and most of the people who attended were either non-churchgoers or people who attended church, other churches who participated in the vows ceremony. And the priest from the, the parish and sisters came out. The point of that is that we work together, and they all know that I'm Sister Bear. They wouldn't know who Sister Marie is because I've been known here here. <laughs> But um, but we work together on things, and when when times occur that someone might have an experience, maybe an experience of God that surprised them, if they're not, um, you know, church-going types, they might mention it to me or to Karen, our associate member Karen. Um, or others, um, but one must be very respectful, because as you say, it's God who leads people 
it's God who calls people. And we can respond, but we can't force anything and must not force anything. Yes, uh, that is so true. When uh, my kids were little uh, at one point, between campaigns, I often worked at car dealerships. <laughs> and car de- let me tell you, car people, they like gambling, they like women, they like smoking, they like drinking, <laughs> you know. Um, and everybody knew I'd go uh, throughout the day, I'd go and say my rosary, say, I'd say a decade at a time. Everybody knew it, but I was an ordinary guy. One of the things that I was most proud of was that all these rough characters, when something was troubling them, they'd come to me and ask me to pray for them. Now, they didn't want me to tell anybody else that I was. <laughs> but if we witness God by seeing the good in people, mm-hmm. Not trying to go through it. You can bring so many people. You can take down so many barriers. You can bring them closer to the encounter with God. And I so wish people would learn that instead of all the lecturing that goes on. Yeah. You know, that's what my whole program is. Acknowledge God, take the next right step, and be a sign of hope. Right. Um, it doesn't have a DVD God. series yet. <laughs> but I assume if somebody needed you to call them, you would on their birthday. <laughs> I've done it. I just had a, I had a, I wanted to know, Sister Sister Bear, um, mm-hmm. you like me are a convert. I am. Tell me your story. What moved you? What brought you into the faith? Well, you know. I have a great respect, first of all, for the communion of saints. And in my past, on both sides of the family, there were Catholics, at least two or more generations ago. So so I believe that they were praying for me. And um, that that's important. I was baptized as an infant in uh, at Trinity Episcopal cathedral in Portland, and, you know, the Catholic Church honors baptisms of other churches when there's the same understanding of baptism, which I really appreciate. So there, so that happened, and then, so I had it sort of in my background, but nobody, um, nobody was practicing, and growing up, I attended the little Episcopal church um, occasionally. But for a long time, I would have considered myself an agnostic. I do remember taking one class in college. I was a French major in college at the University of Washington. I remember taking one class. The whole quarter um, was on the Divine Comedy. All, th- all three of the, um, three, you know, the Inferno, Purgatory. Mm-hmm and paradise and the the professor taught that class with such reverence that I was attracted it was the first time I had been exposed to a view of Christianity that that had such depth and appealed to me of course it was and it was a summation of medieval thought on Christianity Dante pretty much put that all together and then after college, my first job out of college was, by happenstance, I, I ended up working 
at a Catholic hospital in Sacramento, California. <clears throat> and I was surprised, surprised that they would hire me, a non-Catholic agnostic. And the very first day of work, um, little sister Mary Christopher came in to give us the orientation on the mission and philosophy of the Sisters of Mercy. And I was immediately attracted and um, became friends with many of the nuns that worked there and maintained those friendships all through the years. And, and still today, I'm very close friends with Sisters of Mercy um, that have been significant in my journey through these years. So, but as far as becoming Catholic, um, be, first it was the friendship with them. Then one of them invited me to come to Mass. And th at this time I lived in Davis, California, near Sacramento. And so I started going to Mass at St. James in Davis. And the Mass was immediately appealing to me. So attractive. And, I, and after, after Mass... I'd go, I'd go over on Saturday mornings and go to Mass, and a little group, including the deacon, would go out for coffee afterwards, and we'd, we'd talk about faith journey type things, faith sharing. So it was all very informal and attractive. And then at a later point, I, I was working at a Catholic hospital in Burbank, California, St. Joseph Medical Center, mm -hmm. for two years. And it was during those times... During that time that, um, you know, this, I was friends of the sisters and priests there, all very gently responding to my questions and my insights and so forth. And it was during that time that my dad died. And the providential circumstances surrounding his death were one of those times... It was one of those times when the circumstances were highly improbable, not impossible, but highly improbable. And so I recognized these circumstances as only possible by God's design. And so it was, it was really a short time after that that I moved back to Davis and went through the RCIA and became a Catholic. Of course, there's a lot more to it, but just right. all of the input and the, just the attraction. It wasn't like I had to sit down and go through all the different potential denominations and decide which one was true and which one was less right. true. It, none, n that wasn't it at all. It wasn't like your big investigation, Charlie. Mm -hmm. Well, when it, it, when it came, it was when it came for me, mm -hmm. it was unexpected and astonishing. And all that. There yeah. was no. I mean, I did. I did investigate after I came into the Catholic Church. I read furiously the uh -huh. first two months I was in RCA. I had to read thirty books, Fathers <laughs> of the Church, um, the uh, documents of Vatican II. I mean, I went through it all uh, and everything, and it just all held. Mm -hmm. It all held. Now, certainly in RCIA, some of my um, some of my instructors occasionally said things that didn't quite hold, but then I'd read it, uh, you know, it all holds. And it was, you know, before I went into the church, I was 
I was I have never been intimidated by anybody. Mm-hmm. Before the right of acceptance, I mm-hmm. started having bad dreams. Mm-hmm. I dreamed that the priest was going to tell me, "No, we won't accept you," uh, and that. And I told my then girlfriend about that, and she was tickled. I said, "Why are you tickled?" She said, "You're intimidated, aren't you?" I said, "Yeah, kind of." She said, uh, "Now you know how the rest of us feel most of the time, <laughs> and all of that." But I felt like a poor orphan who had given up on finding a home, and suddenly he has a home, and oh, how I loved it. Oh, how I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it, it's always love, isn't it? It is love. And for me, um, you know, it is love. And even though I think we had a pretty solid RCIA process to go through, um, we lived it, it was in a college town, so we had professors teaching some of the subjects and so forth. But still, that was just the beginning. And as life goes on, you you run up against something or other where you ha- where you feel drawn to investigate what the church really means by such and such. And what I've always found is the depth increases and we will never exhaust it, but somehow it's all there. Um, to ponder, to be guided by. And uh, I just, re- oh, I remember in 1993 when the French edition of the Catechism of the Catholic Church came out. And, and the original version was in French. Everything else is a translation, including the Latin. So I, I got that and I thought, what an incredible gift it was for Pope John Paul II, St. Pope John Paul II to call all the bishops of the world together into this process for a number of years to um, create the modern catechism. Because it's right there, and we can we can look up the basics there. Of course, there's endless exploration of other writers and just reflection on our own experience. But we have we have so much in this great gift of the church, and um, well, I could go on and on. All the depths. 500 years, they'll still be studying and finding new nuances to what um, what St. John Paul wrote in his encyclicals. What an amazing man and saint and pope. Jazz, you've been quiet. Obviously, right. uh, Sister Maria or Sister Bear and I have been talking and talking. It is, what, uh, what comes to your mind? Well, it's one of my general rules not to uh, interrupt anyone during their conversion story. So, uh, <laughs> how did you get to be a sister seemingly in the middle of nowhere? Well, this is actually my home. I, I tell people, like those sam- like those Chinook salmon that were spawned here, so was I. <laughs> and I am actually a member of the Chinook Indian tribe. So, um, so I... I Gwen Medicine Woman. <laughs> <laughs> I am actually uh, one of the few natives of Camp Sherman, Oregon. Wow. And I've, but I've lived in 12 other cities, including Camp Sherman, which isn't even a city, and, I've, and four states. So it's not like I've lived here the whole time, but my family's always had a 
little rustic cabin here and some other property. So we always came back. So I actually was back here in 2000, from 2000 to 2003, during which time, by the way, I attended World Youth Day in Toronto, which was which was a profound experience uh, because that was the moment, even though I'd had friendships with sisters for many years and, and, all, and felt very drawn to religious life, I had not yet taken that step. And I remember the last night lying out on the, on the ground with a, several hundred thousand other pilgrims at Downsview Land, former airport, and we spent the last night there in our sleeping bags. And I remember Pope John Paul was there, and he he gave his reflection. There was a meditation, um, you know, that it was the um, the the uh, Magnificat, and it was sung by John Michael Talbot himself. So that was neat. Anyway, Pope John Paul flew off in his helicopter, and his his closing words to us that night were, "Good night, God bless you, and have a no goodbye. God bless you. I'll see you in the morning." Anyway, shortly after that, I was really tired, but I suddenly woke up with tears streaming down my face. And there was this young woman's voice singing, I long to know you and give my life to you and give my life to you. So that was the moment I knew it was time to, to actually do it. So the sisters, I, there, there is no religious community with its headquarters in Eastern Oregon, which is the Diocese of Baker. Everything east of the Cascades in Oregon is the Diocese of Baker. There are a few sisters from some other place that might have served here over the years, but there is no indigenous religious community. So I knew that if for me to follow that, I would have to go somewhere else. So I was in touch with my friends, the Sisters of Mercy in California. They're actually all over the world. And I went through the whole formation process with them. And without going into all the details, it was it was after the novitiate when I awakened, filled with the vision of the sisters of the Metolius. And that was on February first, two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. And I I'm the last person who ever expected to be at the beginning of any kind of religious community. But I stayed with that, and then I, I, I spoke with some representatives of the Diocese of Baker up here um, in, I guess, about July of that year. And the priest that I met with, uh, and also Charlie, or no, not Charlie, but Matt and Karen, the other associates, were with me. And they said, this is how it's done. And so the bishop of the Diocese of Baker at the time was very encouraging. And in fact, when it came time to um, have my vows ceremony up here, he spent an hour with me on the phone 
saying, okay, so because of the status of this, this is what you can do. And, uh, you know, he was so helpful and encouraging. He's now in a different diocese. Um, so, so it was returning home to a place that is, is a beautiful place that many people from all over are drawn to, but they don't live here. Um, most of the houses here are empty most of the year. So there's this little core community of a, about 150 people that tends to things. So, so to have it here is um, somehow important, um, just because that's that's how the that's what I awakened with. Well, for you, it's kind of a uh, coming home. It is very at so many levels. You come home to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. You're a Chinook Indian part. You're mm-hmm. at your ancestral home. Mm-hmm. You're also at the home where you grew up, where you were born, where you were spawned, as it were. Uh-huh. And now you started a native religious order there. Right. That's kind of, at so many levels, it, it works. Right. And, you know, the other important thing is the people... It, it, it has been said, and I, I read it frequent, not not infrequently, that Oregon and Washington are among the most unchurched states of the Union. They're very, especially Eastern Oregon, um, wide open spaces. If there is a church somewhere, it's a little tiny church, and you know many many people of goodwill who don't necessarily feel drawn to attend a church of any kind. You know, there's the beauty of nature and so forth. Uh, So you have to be able to, um, you know, fit in somehow and not be, not be all weird and unapproachable. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I return here like the salmon. You want to come to church with me? an example of that um we have our own dump here it's, it's like a transfer site but we call it the dump but it's only open from on most of the year it's open on sundays from 10 to 2 so that all the vacationers can you know the weekenders can come and put their garbage in. well it's manned by volunteers because you can't just have it open all the time it's manned by volunteers just during the open hours so i'm a dump volunteer a dump steer we even have our own sweatshirts, you know. The, I bet they the smell door. awesome. No, the, <laughs> they do, but we, we actually wash our, you know. The, so the front has a nice little, you know, kind of official-looking logo, logo, and the back says, let's talk trash. I like it. And, <laughs> and so, but the dump on Sundays especially, you know, is where people come from the hinterlands with their with their trash and recyclables and their free pile stuff. And the, the dump on Sundays is the well. It is the well where people come to touch a base, to, you know, ah. say, you know, oh, I'm having a problem with this, you know. But you have to be down to earth because the dump steers, you know, we're cheapskates too. We actually have to get into the dumpsters and stomp them down because... We pay by the dumpster, not by the, con- the amount of content. So we want to make sure to get a lot of trash in there. 
<laughs> so that we don't we can pay less. I mean, this is how down to earth we have to be. Here. Did they teach you that in nun school, Sister Bear? <laughs> they 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 didn't teach me that in nun school, but it's it's part of what I would call the informal ministries um, that we we conduct up here. You know, making sure all the ter- making sure we are good stewards of of the dump the dump fees that people pay. Sounds okay. nice. Uh, Sister Bear, I had a question about your take on something which I think would be unique and useful to people. Uh, from everything you've said, I get that simplicity is a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. Touch on a little bit of the goodness of simplicity, how to live more simple, and how that affects your life and your faith and everything else. Mm-hmm. Yes, one of my vows is described as, um, instead of uh, the vow of, of poverty, which sometimes you have to explain that this day and age, Right. it's, it's the vow of simplicity of life is how I describe it. <clears throat> the less stuff you have to deal with, the more you're available and the less you have to worry about finances. Agreed. So 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 up here, for example, it, it's important for me to live simply because uh the apostolate type work that I do, I might get paid some I do, I have to get paid something. Um but I don't have to get paid much because I don't have a lot of overhead. So that enables me to do things like, for example, the elder care. Um, that if I if I have, if I had a lot higher overhead, I'd have to charge a lot more, and then they couldn't afford it. And you know, so simplicity enables that. It also just um, it enables time to be spent on on things other than maintaining stuff. Um, it adds a degree of comfort. So, for example, um, when I when I go to stay at somebody's house, I don't need I don't need the whole big guest room. Give me a soft floor and I'll put my sleeping bag on it and I'm fine. That's simplicity. Right. Um, simplicity is my little trucklet. I bought my trucklet new in 1984, um, little Ford Ranger. There you go. I, you know, I really like not having had to make a car payment since 1989. And there's freedom in that because I just don't have to worry about car payments. So, um, what else about simplicity? Well, I think... I always have to monitor the simplicity because there's, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And so when you keep your life simple, there are always influences to try to get, get magnetized in to fill up empty spaces. Well, we need empty spaces. I do anyway. And um, to me, it's part of the quiet that I need just to be reflective. 
Yeah, I think a couple things you said really could resonate with a lot of people. And one thing that I'm following that you do that a lot of people don't is stewardship. And I think a lot of people are like, stewardship, what is that? Um, but you take care of what you have. Uh, the idea of having a 1985 pickup uh, yeah. truck is uh -huh. foreign to so many people. And it's like, a, it, it's a badge for you. You know, like a badge of pride or whatever you're like this is my 85 ranger which is older than me by the way <laughs> just by a year <laughs> yeah long enough so uh what is it you had kind of a you've been in big cities you came back to the small place the other thing i think is a good take from you is your trust in God like how do you understand that this is where you're supposed to be in life because I think if I go back to when you first bought your Ford Ranger and said hey you're going to be a nun leading your own order in the middle of this town where there's 150 people even though it is your home mm -hmm. you know what I uh, I just never had a five-year plan I, I learned a long time ago. I mean, probably the last four-year plan I had was to get through college. And I did. And I learned subsequently that... Actually, Charlie's next right step motto is is really appealing to me. Because I, what, I, what I learned is I can't possibly predict the future. I can't possibly... Um, I mean, I might have a, sen a general sense of direction, but that if I had planned my life, I would have not ha in any way have had the adventure that I've had by following God's prompting along the way. And that's, that's a learned experience. I, I have just learned that over the years. So there have been times when I've been doing one thing and then had a rather sudden um, small personal revelation, okay, now I want you to do this. And I've done it enough times. You know, I, I don't necessarily do things rashly. I, I usually kind of, if there's time to ponder it for a while, I'll ponder it for a while and just see how things, you know, see if things are confirmed or not in various ways. But but I've learned over the years when the, the promptings seem, seem close enough to God's leading to be genuine, that I've I've done those things and have been astonished. And and they've had they've required a great deal of trust. Probably my first experience of utter terror turning into trust was back in 1989. So I had been a Catholic for a few years and I was the parish respect life contact. And there was a little, uh, pregnancy center in town, uh, that was 
that was founded by the even founded by some evangelical pastors. So they needed a new we and I was sort of a contact for them. They knew me, but then the direct the original director was needed to retire. She had health problems. So they were looking for a new director. So I put the word in the bulletin, you know, looking for a director and so forth. Well, that went on for about two or three months. And then I had an experience where I realized I need to apply for that. And at the time, I had a pretty cushy, well-paying job, you know, regular paycheck. And I applied for it, and I was accepted by this group of evangelical pastors and elders who prayed over every candidate. And so after I had resigned my other job and was about to start this new job, I had a night of terror where I realized how am I, I thought, how am I going to pay my bills? I mean, this is a, doesn't charge anything to its clients, relies solely on voluntary donations. That was the source of funding. And yet I worked there for six years, <laughs> paid my bills, scaled down a bit. And it was, yeah. <laughs> uh, didn't didn't trade in that Ford Ranger. <laughs> Still had the Ford Ranger, of course, you know. And and then, so that gave me this. That was one, only one, but a very important experience of God's providence. And we always paid our bills. We all, you know, at the center. So, so you can trust God. You might be terrified at first. You know, Jesus said, be not afraid. He wouldn't have said that if people weren't really afraid. Yes, but, it's not that he'll make everything all comfy easy for you. You have to walk into your fears and see that he's there. Exactly. So that was a huge thing for me. So coming coming back to Camp Sherman, you know, I still have to exercise that. So I, I still have to exercise that trust. But I, I know, and, and, you know, it's not that I don't sometimes have the, those moments, but I have enough experience of God's faithfulness that I know that I know at least intellectually that my trust is warranted. Yeah. Well, and you talked about kind of some things that make your promptings a little bit, you know, authentic enough for you to pay attention to. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've told people oh, one of my big ones and, you know, anyone listening, this is one of my things, but generally I think it's uh, God's sense of humor, if you're listening for it, is he wants us to do things that physically it is the next right, you know, it's the next right thing to do, or it's physically pretty simple, but something we don't want to do that makes us uncomfortable. Right. And, and I've come to think, oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Dad. No, I've come to think, one of the things with my pilgrimage, every one of our lives is a pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. um, and if we try to plan it all out, I mean, sometimes there were fire in Texas for a while. There were fires in front of me, fires behind me. You, you, have, to, uh, <laughs> you have to figure something out that's different than what you plan. But one thing that stuck with there's a lot of things that stuck with me, but one thing that's, that struck me. 
on God's providence. I had already gotten into Colorado. I was in northeastern Colorado. Well, some circumstances developed where I hadn't eaten for three days. I mean, I was starved. And trust me, after about 36 hours of not eating nothing, hunger becomes a huge issue for you. Uh, it's much more than just not having a full belly. Three days, I called my best friend. He had his secretary um, wire, wire on my debit card $300. Mm. I was just about a uh, maybe a mile out of a town. And the whole way, I'm thinking, oh, thank goodness. In a town, there's going to be some sort of little restaurant I can eat. Well, I went into this little place. It was kind of like a bar and grill. And the waitress, I had six, count them, six cherry Cokes. <laughs> um, the waitress, she brought me my food, big old hamburger. That was great. Turns out she's not the waitress. I mean, she's talking to me about what I'm doing. She was the owner. She wouldn't accept my money. The next place I went, um, I was going to use the debit card. Another little place, they were watching football. I used to do that. Um, and they were making hot dogs and hamburgers. They said they made the best hamburgers. I said, okay, I'll take a couple. I pull out my debit card. They didn't take them. I didn't have any cash. They said, ah, shoot, you're, you're on us tonight. Have whatever you want. They wouldn't take any money. The third place I went to, same thing. And I thought, you know, God, if you I would have known that, <laughs> I wouldn't have been so hungry in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I took it as God saying, I'm here. You know, you worry yes. about so many things, but I'm here. Mm -hmm. Just keep going. Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. And the great thing about the next right step in a pilgrimage, we're all going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Key is acknowledge God. If you acknowledge God, you can walk with a great confidence that even when you take the next wrong step, Keep acknowledging God. Don't get vested in your way, and God will set you right. He mm -hmm. always does. Right. Um, sister, do you have, uh, we got probably seven, ten minutes left. Do you have anything that you want to say? Um, yeah, you know, I I'd like to speak about how I first discovered the next right step um, okay. and have followed it for now two years, a little more than two years, actually. Um, while I was involved in my previous apostolate, it, it took so much of my time and energy that I just couldn't deal with keeping up with a lot of world events and so forth. And then in 2012, when I moved back to Camp Sherman, <clears throat> An incident happened, uh, the incident in Benghazi, which which w was uh, profoundly troubling to me. And so that prompted me to begin investigating and paying much more attention to what was going on in the world from different, you know, I looked into all kinds of different news sources, some reputable, some not, on the Internet. So I just sort of buried in that for two or three years. Um, that was on top of another disturbing development, which was when um, the Health and Human Services Department started mandating that the, the violation of conscience, remember under Obamacare? Yes. 
that was just deeply troubling to me because it was so utterly unconstitutional. So all of this confluence of things going on that were troubling led me to begin examining things that I hadn't had the time or inclination to examine. I was really more concerned than ever about the state of the world. Not just the state of the church, but to be honest with you, I don't worry too much about the church. Um, Jesus gave a guarantee there. So. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I know there's a lot of, and it's, things can be troubling, but it's it's not a huge worry for me, although things are troubling. But the state of the world was very troubling because there were so many wrong things going on. And it was, and I, I would be praying the divine office, the liturgy of the hours, and I sit in my little living room, prayer room, looking out at the mountains and... You know, I can just, they connect me to the world in the sense of the fact that the the snow on the mountains comes from the ocean and the rain and the snow. It melts down into the Metolius through underground springs, goes out to the ocean, and it's connected to all these continents where there's a great deal of trouble. And I remember frequently in the Liturgy of the Hours, which you know, there are so many prayers about God taking care of this and that, and, you know, God will take action. And I, I prayed so often, Lord, so where are you now? Where, <laughs> what are you doing now? I, I did have that question. And so when I, when I discovered um, the Next Right Step blog website, um, providentially, it all rang true for me and gave me a great deal of hope. I was kind of in a dark frame of mind, which is not like me generally. It gave me a great deal of hope, and regardless of how it all plays out, I still have that hope, and I take seriously the step of being a sign of hope to those around me in this little community of Camp Sherman. So I wanted to say thank you, Charlie, for putting yourself out there with your with your website, um, for putting yourself out there by traveling to all these little communities all over, for staying with it, for coming back, even after the blunder, and much appreciation for, for being with us, being our Sherpa, engaging us, getting us involved, and helping um, helping us to equip ourselves to be uh, to be what we need to do to be at this time as a as a community. Well, thank you, sister. Um, you know, one of the things over the last couple of years traveling around the country. I've absolutely fallen in love with the nuns working quietly out there, (laughs) not getting any notice, but doing good work. You're working with the elderly. You're working in a remote community. I've got some friends. uh, There's an order in Poplarville, Mississippi, equally remote. And in the Bible Belt, where there ain't a whole lot of Catholics, 
<laughs> doing great work. They've got wonderful um, prayer meetings going on. Um, the sisters in Opalaka, Florida, I passed their I passed their little monastery three times because it's just a little house. They feed 300 families a month. Not 300 meals, 300 families. They're just amazing on it. And I see all over these sisters that are hidden. There are sisters near you, and they're doing incredible work wherever you are. Find them. Help them. Support them. I got to tell you, sister, um, the nuns in this country have become a profound sign of hope uh, to me. Uh, and that. Now, regarding the blunder, I read uh, a fella in a novel at one point who said that, uh, well, I'm more clever than the most men, so that means that my mistakes are more dramatic <laughs> than most men. <laughs> and I took great comfort in that. <laughs> True story. Yeah. I, uh, oh, you know what? Sister, this is great for you. I'll tell you. This actually ties up well because I normally do a funny story about my dad and he just mm -hmm. talked about his blum, blunder and your Native American by, mm -hmm. you know. so I, if, do you know what pemmican is? I do. Okay, oh, great. We're not going to do the pemmican. Oh anymore. yeah, this is awesome. So <laughs> It's very nutritious. Right. And so I came across pemmican and I saved for those of you that don't know what pemmican is, it's basically dried meat, some kind of dried fruit, and you bind it all together with animal fat. Long story short. Yum. Yeah. And somehow it's tasty, if you can do it right. I haven't figured that part out yet. But anyway, I came across this and I was like, oh man, this is granola bars, but with meat. Awesome. <laughs> 10 out of 10 on my food scale. Uh, so I'm talking to my dad and he knows he reads everything. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, dad, I started making some pemmican and he's like, oh yeah, pemmican, pemmican. That's really, um, yeah, they, uh, I know all about pemmican. I said, really, you know, uh, pemmican recipe. He's like, oh yeah, they talked about it in the last of the Mohicans, all about pemmican. And we we're talking about like how long it could last or some specifics of pemmican and he just mm -hmm. totally threw a bunch of nonsense out there because i had been hardcore researching pemmican for like a couple of weeks so i called <laughs> him out on it and he threw his numbers and i was like well and then i looked up how what they actually said about pemmican in the last of the mohicans and basically all they said is we ate pemmican <laughs> he was giving me recipes and all this stuff about pemmican. I was like, Dad, um, I looked up everything about pemmican in the last Mohicans, and they just said they ate it with no specifics. He's like, maybe I don't know anything about pemmican. Whatever. <laughs> I will tell you, Sister Bear, that there's nothing my family loves better than to find something where I have screwed up <laughs> but 
I don't begrudge them that too much because it doesn't happen too often. <laughs> yeah. So alas, alas, it's hard to stay humble, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Do, it's you the know? process of having to stay humble that's hard. Oh, they keep me humble by gum. I uh, when I make a mistake, they let me hear about it for the next ten years. <laughs> most people don't think about kicking him. I try and knock him down and then kick him when he's there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will say one thing on this. Um, as far as I see it, my work all my life has been to hearten the faithful, defend the faithful, you know, defend the faith. And I will do that as long as I'm taking breath. Uh, God is. God loves us. God is not done with us. This is not the end. Uh, but the only way to glory is through the cross. And so we're all going to have to go through the cross. We're going through our crosses. Simplicity helps simplify it. Uh, and that, but till the till the last day I'm taking breath, I will. God, God help me, be faithful. And I know, Sister Marie, I think that's one of the reasons why I've fallen so much in the lo uh, in love with the nuns in this country, without getting recognition. Without getting uh, all the plaudits, you just keep doing it. You keep doing the things you're doing. You do the good things you're doing out of love. Love for God and love for your neighbor. And love for your neighbor truly is love for God. And that's something worth living for. And if people find that again, they will find happiness again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Truly. Yeah. Well, uh Sister, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> Sister Bear, thank you for taking a little extra time. And uh, I'll be out on the West Coast in November uh, sometime, so I hope I get a chance to see you again. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, if you can get a ride over to Oregon, there's there, there are rooms for you to stay here. Very good. Maybe we'll uh, somewhere settle back and have a nice piece of pemmican. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And if I'm ever in the neighborhood, uh, I'll look for an 85 Ranger. Okay, baby blue, baby oh. blue, white wow. camp. Who's who's talking about humility now? <laughs> what the fact that it's baby blue? That's right. Yes, that's a point of pride. Yes. <laughs> it used to be navy, but it's from 85. <laughs> well. Uh, Sister, really, thanks for coming on. Thanks for doing what you do. Okay. God bless you all, and safe and happy trails. Uh, same to you, sister. God bless you. Okay. Okay. Bye. And the people of the kingdom, and the people of heaven, shall rise together. Shall rise forever. People of the kingdom shall 